0: www.iconifact.org. The issue of policing in minority communities and related issues like the high incarceration rates in the United States, especially of black men have been at the forefront over the past few weeks. But of course, these issues have been around for a lot longer than that. One of the leading scholars in this field is Professor Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where she is the director of the Justice Tech Lab. She also hosts the podcast Probable Causation, which is about law, economics and crime. Jennifer, welcome to AccountaFact Chats.
1: Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, It's great to have you on the on the podcast. The death of George Floyd sparked national protests, and even protests in other countries as well. One focus of the protests has been police behavior in minority communities and towards minorities, especially black men. As a leading scholar in the field, Jennifer, what lessons from research would you like people to know?
1: So I think there's a lot of research evidence that um that the complaints that people have from minority communities are justified. Uh, there's certainly tons of qualitative and ethnographic research on this, but even within economics, there are a number of studies that look at um, uh, racial bias uh, by police and, and especially in the way that they use their discretion on the job. Um, and uh, and those, you know, in many, if not most contexts do find evidence of racial bias. I think just generally though, we, all, we have, An extensive literature at this point showing that racial bias is pervasive in almost every, you know, aspect of of American life. Uh, And so it's not at all surprising that it would also be a problem in policing.
0: You you mentioned something interesting in the discretion that they use on their job. So that suggests that, you know, just rules or regulations by themselves are not going to um, work. Does research have some things to tell us about policies to fix these problems? And what works, training or community outreach or efforts to hire from minority communities?
1: Um, research has some to say, not nearly as much as we need, I would say. Um, and there's there's a lot of work to do and lots of creativity going into doing it right now. Uh, I think there are a lot of hypotheses out there um, based on the qualitative work that I mentioned before. Um but, uh, you know, so there's a few studies I would highlight. There was a really nice uh, randomized controlled trial of a procedural justice training program in Chicago.
0: Can you um, just, um, for our readers, who, uh, listeners who aren't, so, um, you know, so don't have the background in this. What do you mean by randomized control trial and by procedural justice?
1: (laughs) Yes, two definitions. So randomized control trial is uh, is in some ways that what we think of as the gold standard way to measure causal effects. So um, if you have a pool of people that, uh, in this case, police officers that need to be trained, um, you could uh, um, randomize some, randomly assign some to get the training and others not. And then you can compare them going forward.
0: So that's like what's done in medicine, right? That's exactly. Good. So it's kind As of said, really the old close, standard.
1: Yeah. close to the lab experiment uh, model that we, we would like to approximate in the real world. Um, and then procedural justice is um, uh, a way of thinking about the, the police community interactions such that um, it, it really emphasizing making communities feel heard and like participants in the process and trusting the process. Um, and so uh, these trainings uh, push police officers to make sure that they're, like, asking citizens what their view is and, and uh, really taking their views into account before they make a decision. Um, so there have, uh, there have actually been two uh, studies on procedural justice trainings. One was a randomized controlled trial in Seattle. Um, it found beneficial effects in terms of reductions in um, the likelihood that uh, police used uh, arrests, I think. And I think they might've also looked at use of force, but I'm having trouble remembering off the top of my head. The more recent study was much larger in Chicago and, um, they randomized the timing of when officers got this training and, and, um, Chicago had to train all 8,000 of its officers and they could do it all at once. So they basically, uh, trained about 25 officers at a time over several years. And that allowed us to, um, to see what the impact of that training was on police behavior. And in that study, they, the researchers found that, um, getting this training reduced citizen complaints by quite a bit. It also reduced officer's use of force. So that's one kind of nugget of good news, uh, something that seems to work. And, um, uh, I hope to see similar studies in other places.
0: So that latter study you talked about, that's actually, what we call a natural experiment, as opposed to a randomized control trial, because it just so happened that the way it worked, it it lent itself to analysis.
1: It was a bit of both. So they actually, they, they randomized the timing. Um, but then there was also this staggered rollout. So, um, you know, if we just had the staggered rollout, we might worry that it was like the volunteers did it first, and then comparing or compa- comparing early trainees to later trainees might not give you exactly what you want. So it really helped that the researchers layered on this randomization um, in this particular case.
0: And that that's something you've been advocating, I know, for a while, that the researchers were involved in the implementation and creation of these. So we do have a better Understanding So there's a really important role for economists and other social scientists to help see what works and what doesn't.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, my own view as a researcher is uh, we really have no idea yet what is going to be most effective at um, changing policing for the better um, and reaching the, the social goals that a lot of people are advocating for right now. And so we should just start trying stuff, all right? There are a lot of hypotheses out there. People are pushing for lots of different reforms. But we know that policies don't work all the time, even if they're really well-meaning. And sometimes they even have negative unintended consequences that can do more harm than good. And I think that's especially true in a space related to diversity and discrimination. Um, So yeah, when I have these conversations with policymakers, I make sure to really push for um, for them to think think like scientists to some extent and really be aiming to just try stuff. And if it doesn't work, to figure that out as quickly as possible so that we can try something else.
0: How do you find their reactions when you bring up these points, Jennifer? Are they, you know, amenable to that and they understand it has to be done to actually understand what's going on? Or do they push back and say, well, you economists, you don't know what it's like on the street.
1: <laughs> A bit of both, I would say. So, um there are a number of policy labs that have cropped up in recent years that work directly with government. Um, so I spent a little time myself actually working with a lab at D.C., which is a research group in the mayor's office in D.C., uh, filled with research uh, researchers, social scientists, data scientists that have tried really to change the culture of government in the city. And I think that's the case in other places that have these kinds of policy labs, too, where you basically just have a lot of conversations and a lot of... Uh, Trust building exercises, if you will, with government officials and practitioners to, to make them realize that, um, you know, this this can be a mutually beneficial process. We're not auditors. We're not like trying to, you know, figure out where you've you failed <laughs> and like catch you in, in implementing a program that isn't working, um, that this sort of evaluation process can be helpful in, on iterating on a program or policy in order to get the best benefits. But you know that I think um, the extent to which different practitioners and, and leaders are amenable to that varies widely from place to place, and there's a long way to go. But uh, I, in general, I think this is a policy space. The crime space is one where we can um, uh, policymakers and practitioners are more amenable than usual to research.
0: I imagine another challenge is that you know everybody wants things done yesterday, and mm-hmm. it takes a while to um, both gather the data and do the analysis. And then also there are probably differences in the duration it will take for some of these different kinds of interventions to have an effect, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, for something like the police training that I was talking about earlier, we might expect a really sudden effect, but that seems like the sort of thing that would probably take a little longer um, to to see big benefits, and maybe even repeated trainings over time could uh, could have benefits. So, ideally, you want to follow people for you know six months to a year or two years, especially if the outcomes that you're looking at are uh, you know more more frequent than we would like socially, but relatively rare by research standards. Um, so, like use of force, for instance, you'd actually need to follow police for a fair amount of time to pick up a statistical impact on that outcome. Um, you know, the way that I, I pitch this to policymakers is that the time's going to pass anyway. So we might as well uh, think at least a little bit upfront about whether there's a way to implement a policy that improves our ability to measure its impacts over time.
0: Are there any changes that, you know, where you can observe more quickly than just changing the culture of whether those changes work?
1: Yeah, so there's certainly you know some types of policy changes where I would expect a more a more sudden effect. So um, there there's a lot of discussion about the the revenue generating activities of some police departments. You know, they often get to keep the fees and fines they collect or assets that are forfeited. Um,
0: is this yeah. a famous story that you don't want to be speeding towards the end of the month?
1: <laughs> yeah, so some of it is right quotas on on traffic tickets that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of people have pointed out over the years that, uh, that our current policies really, um, uh, provide perverse incentives in this space, right? That maybe the police shouldn't be able to keep the revenue (laughs) that they, that they collect in this way. Uh, you know, maybe there, maybe some traffic tickets are sort of socially optimal fines are actually the best way to, to, um, to punish someone for doing something wrong, but, uh, we could have that in place and have the revenue go to the state or federal government or something like that, um, rather than have the, the police departments have an incentive to do perhaps more of that than is socially good. So, you know, if we were to change those kinds of policies and suddenly change the incentive incentives for police officers, uh, I would expect a much more sudden change. Um, right. The there.
0: Right. I mean, one of the, the basic, you know, um, message of economics is, Incentives matter and constraints matter. Incentives matter. matter. Yeah, <laughs> basically all of, that, all of economics. That's all, all we got. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> well, it works pretty well, though. We get a lot yeah. out of it. Um, one example of a policy that was thought to be important is the use of police-worn body cameras. Is there evidence that this makes a difference, either in the way that the police interact with people or in the cases of alleged misconduct in the outcomes and consequences of investigations?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a policy where we have a fair amount of evidence, which is rare in any policy space, I think, but especially in the criminal justice space. Um, so there have been a number of cities that have done randomized controlled trials uh, where they randomly assigned cameras to across officers or across shifts over the course of the day. So on one shift, all the officers would have a camera or none of them would, um, and then measured impacts on police behavior. And the hope was that if officers know that all their actions are being recorded then that might deter them from doing things that they know are, are bad or frowned upon. Um, and so we might see improved behavior. And basically across the board there, those studies on, so on average, they find no effect on officer behavior. Um, there is some variation across places. So in some places, it seems to help a little bit. Officer behavior gets better and the sense of complaints going down or use the force going down. But um, in other places, it actually gets worse. <laughs> so use of force goes up in some places. Uh, the biggest um, and first study in the United States in a, in a major city was in Washington, DC. And there, they found no significant effect on any outcomes. So, it, um, And my hunch about what's going on there is that you know, at this point, everyone's got a cell phone and their cameras all over a city like DC. So police officers are probably already assuming they're on camera all the time. Um, and so maybe they were already treated in a sense. But another, you know, hypothesis that comes out of all of these studies is that, it, you know, it's not it, the problem isn't necessarily that officers know that they're doing something wrong and just need more accountability in the moment, but that sometimes they're act actually genuinely acting out of fear, um, and that maybe training is a better approach.
0: Yeah. So some people might think the fact that you found no effect would be a failure of research, but in fact. That shows how important research really is because you have to show not just what works, but what doesn't work as well. And another issue is whether, you know, a policy tested in one place would have similar effects someplace else. The, the idea of external validity. How do people in your area of economics address these issues? You talk about, for example, um, studies done in Washington, D.C., You know, is that relevant if you're thinking about LA or about Tulsa, Oklahoma?
1: Um, Well, we hope so. (laughs) Um, External validity is always something that is on researchers' minds, and economists are no exception. Um, You know, ideally, we would take something like that procedural justice training that I mentioned earlier, and then replicate it, you know, implement the same type of study in another place and see if we get the same benefits. So my, my policy takeaway from that study, for instance, isn't that procedural justice training works and everyone should just do it at scale immediately. It's that this seems really promising. It worked in Chicago and it might work in other places too, so it's worth trying. But I really do hope that other, other cities implement it in the same sort of staggered rollout way so that they can test it too.
0: Um, at one level, the protests that we've seen recently reflect outrage about police behavior towards African-Americans. But of course, there are a a host of other issues as well. For example, mass incarceration, especially of Black and Hispanic men. The US has the highest number of incarcerated people of any country, is that right? That's right. That's a pretty striking statistic. And Hispanic and Black men are overrepresented in prison. That's true as well, isn't it? Yes. Are there a few main reasons behind this or does this reflect sort of a uh, much broader set of societal issues, all of which are intertwined with race?
1: Um, I think the the latter is probably more the case, that it's a, a very broad set of societal issues and historical context that's really important here. Um, in terms of actual policies and, uh, you know, what changes happened that, that led to incarceration races skyrocket in, you know, more recent decades, I think the consensus is that it's mostly due to um, our movement toward longer and longer sentences. So we're certainly putting putting more people into prison. Um, so on the margin, uh, less serious offenders might also be locked up now than they were in the past. Um, but uh, but we also are, are putting in people into prison for longer. And once you have sentences of ten or twenty or thirty years, uh, that adds up really quickly when you when you think about all the people that are incarcerated at any given time.
0: And. You know, not only when people are incarcerated, but when they get out. So you've written about effects or efforts to get people who are released from prison integrated back into society and to avoid recidivism. What lessons from research do we have about this topic, and to what extent has policy been informed by this research?
1: Yeah. So, so a really large share of my own work is on this prisoner reentry issue. Um, I did a big. Multidisciplinary lit review a couple of years ago, trying to gather together, you know, all the studies that we have on measuring the causal effects of different policies or programs on uh, our ability to um, help people reintegrate successfully into society when they get out of jail and prison. Um, so, one example of, of uh, policies that seem to work that I, I've become very interested in is, is increasing just. The amount of money that we give people <laughs> you know there's a lot of focus on employment or jobs um there have actually been some really nice randomized control trials of just giving people jobs and that does not seem to do anything um which is a bit surprising i think especially to economists but uh but then you know if you happen to get released from prison at a time when the local labor market is is uh really good then your recidivism rates go down and so there's something about having a good job um, that seems beneficial, but then other programs, just like, if you just give people more gate money, like when they get out of prison, just instead of, you know, 50 bucks, you get 200. Um, that seems to be really helpful. So I think there's actually something about just giving people money. That's really useful.
0: And what, what do you think, you know, what's the chan- what are the channels through which that's helpful? Do you have any guesses about that?
1: So there are probably a few different potential ways. So if you give someone, um, uh, more money than they could potentially, uh, you know, have, afford a security deposit on a stable place to live. They could afford um, uh, better health care. They could afford reliable transportation to work. Um, it also might just be something as simple as if you have more money, then you have less incentive to commit property crime in order to get money that you need um, to be, be able to afford necessities. So there are a few different channels there.
0: So a lot of things that, you know, many of us might take for granted, Mm-hmm. Um, are really important. Mm-hmm. Well, these are really important issues, Jennifer. And I both commend you for devoting your professional life to this, which is really important. And you've shown how this has an impact on policy in, in a really important way. And also, I thank you for uh, joining me today on a fact chat to talk about these and to give us a little bit of a window in, into the way economists approach these issues. So thanks very much.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and see the work on our site, you can log in to www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Have a good day.